Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is episode 69 of Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia? Uh, statutes, new cases, uh, new rulings. Today, we're going to talk about statutes, which we haven't done for a long time. We're going to talk about a lot of new statutes, new bills passed by the General Assembly. This is our first batch of new law uh, for about a year. And uh, the governor just signed a whole slew of new bills, including many that affect law enforcement. And unlike previous uh, uh, sessions, uh, not, today's episode is not going to be full of bad news and stuff that we're going to be struggling to cope with. Uh, most of what we're going to talk about today are things that are going to clarify issues that you might have had or add new capabilities for you to deal with common problems. So as we go through today, remember, there are still some bills out there that are have not been signed or the governor has made some recommendations on. If we have time at the end of the podcast today, I'll talk about some of the, one of those in particular, it's really interesting. But today I want to talk about stuff that we know is going to become law on July 1. And so let's dive right in. Let's talk about some of the new statutes, some of the new things that are going to affect uh, in July. And the first one I want to jump into right now is uh, a resolution to a big problem that every law enforcement agency, every prosecutor's office in Virginia has been struggling with uh, since July, and that is the change to the FOIA law. So you may be aware uh, that FOIA changed significantly in uh, 2021, in July of 2021. The General Assembly made massive changes, basically flipped the FOIA rule on its head. The way it used to be was criminal files were uh, essentially covered by discretionary release. You could file, you could answer a FOIA response request and provide a criminal investigative file, but you could also decline to do so under a number of exceptions. And instead, the new rule, what made it basically mandatory for you to, on the request of any person in Virginia or any media organization, uh, to disclose criminal investigative files, criminal incident files, any report, your notes, electronic communications, documents, um, you know, identities of, of, of witnesses, descriptions of injuries, all that kind of stuff, all had to be turned over. There were very, very few exceptions. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, photographs, um, correspondence, witness statements, all that kind of stuff uh, had to be turned over in any case that wasn't ongoing. And the exceptions, the burden of the exception fell on law enforcement. They were very narrowly uh, drawn. And this became a real struggle for law enforcement because now suddenly, uh, essentially, your all your law enforcement files were open to be published online uh, for any closed case. So, if you you know had a complaint of child sexual assault made by someone, it was unfounded. You looked into it. You talked to the witnesses. Um, it was it had no basis. Uh, now that information could be disclosed, and so now this person has to go through all over again this unfounded allegation of sexual assault, and it's out there, and you know the news media can publish whatever they want to publish from that, uh, including witness statements and whatever. So. This is, you know, this was obviously problematic, and uh, there was a concerted effort to put some limitations on it, and that is how we ended up with uh, House Bill 734, which ultimately passed both the House and the Senate. Um, it was a close call. Uh, the House voted 55 to 39. The Senate voted 25 to 15, but the governor did sign it, and this bill uh, significantly limits the impact of these changes of 
FOIA. So I want to talk about sort of what it does. Um, we go back to the, essentially we go back to the world of discretionary disclosure, but there's some really big exceptions. And the exceptions cover the kinds of people that the General Assembly originally said it wanted to give access to files. Um, the General Assembly's stated desire when they passed the change to FOIA last year was not to turn Virginia into Florida. Um, so, you know, in Florida, as you may notice, uh, you know, criminal files are immediately, you know, become subject to FOIA almost, you know, immediately. Um, you'll see, you know, police reports, you'll see pictures of the arrestee, you'll see video of the crime and so on. And that's sort of what I think a lot of ways gives rise to this Florida man idea, you know, on Twitter, you see all these crimes on Twitter. You know, part of the issue there is that all that stuff's open to the media. And so the media can kind of have a field day and make a lot of money just repeating what the police found and putting police reports and videos and pictures and stuff online. The, the General Assembly did not at least publicly say, members didn't say, this is what they wanted to have. Instead, what they said motivated them was a couple of different things. There were General Assembly members who said that victims of crime should be able to get access to their own files. So that is put into as an exception in, in, uh, next year. That'll be part of the law. Um, the other group of people who were advocating for changes to FOIA in the General Assembly were people who were advocating for various innocence projects to post-conviction relief to the ability for someone to come in and examine a criminal file to see if somebody was wrongfully convicted. And so the files are going, we're going to go back to the world of discretionary disclosure more or less, but um, for, pe for, the, for the following people, they're going to have a, that open FOIA access. They're going to be able to come in and look at the file uh, uh, in general and get and get most of the file and here are the people that, that can get most of the file. Uh, it's going to be the victim. Uh, if the victim is deceased, the victim's immediate family or the parent or guardian of the victim if the victim is a minor. Now again, this covers those those advocates who are saying uh, crime victims should be allowed to get their own files or you know the family of a deceased if somebody is dead should be able to get the file uh, especially if that case is closed without a prosecution right this was a big issue and so those people can get files attorneys representing someone in a post-conviction proceeding or request for a pardon uh, can also get a file in addition to that uh, there is a group of people who can come and look at a file, not get a copy of it, but can come look at a file. And these include attorneys or their representatives that are, consider that are considering representing somebody in a post-conviction post proceeding. So if an attorney or representative of the attorney says, well, I'm thinking about representing this person in post-conviction proceeding, they could come in and look at the file. They couldn't copy it, but they can look at it. So can an attorney who provides a sworn declaration that they've been retained for a civil action or a criminal action, uh, and the records need to be reviewed or material. So maybe they're going to sue the police department. Uh, if you're going to sue the police department, then they could come in if they make a sworn application, and they could look at the file. They don't get a copy, but they can look at it. Um, and actually, you know, if you're trying to pro se, if you're representing yourself and you're seeking post-conviction relief, you could, you could see the file. Now, there's a process for that, and, and that's not automatic like it is for attorneys. If somebody is pro se, then they have to fill out an affidavit. They have to apply to the court, uh, the circuit court, and then the circuit court has to determine the records are material, uh, and they have to order the person not to disclose the information to anyone else. Now, query, I mean, if I'm in prison for murder, what do I care about a court order? 
Um, you know, what's a court going to do to me? I don't know. But uh, but that is in the, you know, statute for what it's worth. Um, and the court can also include other conditions as it thinks appropriate to protect uh, to protect the record. So, um, and, and for people who are requesting files, in addition, a right was included in the statute for victims to step forward. They have to be given notice of the fact that someone's coming to look at the file. So, for example, again, if there's an attorney in, who's saying, oh, I'm thinking about representing someone in a, uh, in a criminal case uh, or an Eames community in a civil case, I'm thinking about suing the police department for blah, 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 the victim would have a right for to notice and then a chance to file an injunction right and this is going to exist for for lots of different FOIA situations uh, and this is again to protect a situation like we had in one locality nearby where um, you know a, a, somebody comes in makes a FOIA request uh, and obviously what they want to do is take the information about this victim's abduction and murder and put it all over the news so they can make a bunch of money you know put it all over the internet and produce salacious stories and whatever and it's just an attempt to make money right and that's fine people can make money but why do you get to make money off of the death of my family member here i could step in and say uh no this is this isn't right i mean this is there's no good reason for this and i have a right to to protect the privacy of my family and, and my deceased uh, child so uh, this was now uh, further clarified, further written into the statute. So some big changes, some big relief, I think, for law enforcement, for prosecutors throughout the Commonwealth. Uh, the change last year was devastating to a lot of offices. Um, you know, they said, oh, you can recover money. But of course, it's no good to recover money if, you know, you, it's impossible to serve, to, to, to fulfill the request in the first place. Uh, and, you know, again, what do you say, you know, if you've got a three-person prosecutor's office or a, you know, a 12-person police department and somebody comes in with some massive FOIA request, what good does the money do you? You can't hire somebody else. You can't just go out and hire someone uh, with that money. It's, it's, just, it's, just, it's pointless, right? So this is an improvement, uh, and it was signed by the governor. Uh, the change to the law um, was signed by the governor on, uh, on April 11th. And so uh, good news for law enforcement. Okay, uh, what else uh, changed this year? We got a bunch of other bills, and I do want to talk about uh, several of them. When we're talking about positive changes, things that were clarified, uh, Senator Stewart had a change to the search warrant bill that passed this year, and this is a, a good improvement, but it's not much. Now, I will tell you from the outset that there were a lot of bills that sought to roll back some of the restrictions that were put on search warrants for homes that were... Uh, passed by the General Assembly in their special session in 2020. You may know that the General Assembly passed a ton of bills that restricted law enforcement's ability to serve search warrants at homes, uh, set times a day, set limitations that no, no uh, you couldn't serve them as no-knock warrants, uh, included requirements about uh, knocking and announcing and wearing a uniform and all that sort of stuff. None of the proposed changes, none of the attempts to roll any of that back to fix any of those problems uh, were passed. There were a bunch that were introduced, but none of them passed. So all those problems still exist. The one bill that did make it through was Senator Stewart's bill, which was Senate Bill 404. Uh, and it was uh, signed, it was actually, it had no opposition in the House or the Senate. It passed the Senate 39 to 0. It passed the House 100 to 0. No one voted against it. No one abstained. The governor signed it on April 11th clarifies that when you serve a search warrant at a house, you don't need to hand a copy 
to every single person in the house, whether it's a baby or a 95-year-old person in a coma, uh, the way the bill was originally written. So the way the bill originally was written and passed, the General Assembly said you had to hand a copy to any occupant. And when they passed it, they weren't paying a lot of attention to the words that they were writing and certainly weren't paying attention to the opposition. They, you know, again, somewhat notably, were only taking one minute of comments uh, from anybody who stood in opposition. You can only talk for a minute. Um, they wouldn't meet with anybody in person because of COVID. Uh, and they didn't really want to hear from law enforcement because they said law enforcement and prosecutors, you're part of the problem, so we're not interested in your, what you have to say. Um, and so again, many of the criticisms didn't come through or weren't, weren't taken into account. And one of them was, under the law, the word any occupant uh, means all. Uh, the, stat the, the statutory rule of construction is if you write the word any, it means all. So uh, what law enforcement had to do and has to do, and by the way, still has to do until July 1 under the statute, is hand a copy of the search warrant affidavit to every single person in who's occupying the house if they're serving a search warrant on a house. Um, if the owner is present, the owner is the only person who has to get a copy. If no one is present, then you just leave a copy. But if you went into a house and the owner is not present and there is 15 people in the house, including infants and old people, you know, 95 years old in a coma who can't, you know, speak and, are, you know, in an irreversible coma, those people all get copies. And if you don't give a copy, the evidence gets suppressed because uh, the statute has a statutory rule of suppression in it, not a Fourth Amendment rule, a statutory rule. Um, even if it's not the defendant's house, even if it's the victim's house or a co-defendant's house or whatever, it doesn't matter. The statute says the evidence gets suppressed. So Senator Stewart's bill fixes that, and it says only one person gets a copy, at least one adult occupant of the place to be searched. That's the requirement. If the owner is not present, that's who gets a copy. So the word any is changed to at least one adult, uh, and it says the place to be searched is occupied by an adult, uh, is not occupied, excuse me, is unoccupied by an adult, and you leave a copy. Uh, which, by the way, means if you serve a search warrant and there's only a child in the house, a four-year-old, you don't give the search warrant to a four-year-old. Uh, it's treated like it's unoccupied. There has to be an adult in the house, and then you leave a copy. So uh, that's good. That's an improvement because, uh, again, we were you know going to search warrants with 20 copies of warrants. Uh, here that's fixed, and that's, uh, that's an improvement. Um, Talking about uh, improvements and so on to the law, uh, obviously catalytic converter thefts have been a huge problem in, you know, t jurisdictions throughout the Commonwealth. Um, just been beset by a number of, uh, of 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 thefts, sometimes dozens of thefts. Uh, you know, vulnerable victims. It's terrible. Uh, we're not the worst off in Virginia by sure, by far, uh, but it is certainly a big problem. And so, in the House, uh, Delegate Bell, and in the Senate, uh, Senator Ruff, both had um, uh, bills to in increase penalties for or create new penalties for catalytic converter thefts. Uh, Senator Spruill also had a bill. Um, his bill was rolled into Senator Ruff's, uh, and then Delegate Bell's obviously passed in the House. This was signed by the governor again on April 11th. So what the bill does, and I think this is interesting, what, De what Delegate Bell decided to do, uh, what Delegate Bell does in this bill is he amends the vehicle tampering code section, which is 18.2146. This is a bill, this is a code section that you probably have never used before. I'm guessing that 99 out of 100 law enforcement officers have never used 18.2146. It's a class one misdemeanor under that code section already, 
um, to break, injure, tamper with, or remove any part of a, of a vehicle for the purpose of injuring, defacing, or destroying the vehicle, or temporarily or permanently preventing its useful operation, or for any purpose against the will or without the consent of the owner of the vehicle, uh, or in any other way willfully or maliciously interfere with the running or operation of the vehicle. So, you know, here, if I'm slashing the tires of a vehicle, I could charge someone under this code section. Now, normally, we wouldn't charge this code section. We would charge um, destruction of property because it's a more, it's an easier code section to prove, right? But here, Delegate Bell inserts language into the code section that is read to you, 18.2.146, that says, unless such violation of this section involves the breaking, injuring, or tampering with or removal of a catalytic converter or the parts thereof, then in that situation, the offense becomes a class six felony. And, uh, and oh, by the way, if you go this route, you then can't prosecute under destruction of property. It, would spe it specifically says uh, you've got to choose this code section versus going for destruction of property uh, because otherwise, you know, then you could convict them of both and, then, and they didn't want to do that. So notice you could always have gone for destruction of property under um, 18.2.137 for a catal catalytic converter theft. But it would have been a little complicated to prove because it's a property destruction, so you'd have to prove the value. And the value is it's only a felony if it's over $1,000. And that's complicated, right? A lot of catalytic converters are you know valued at less than $1,000. And the repair, if you figure out insurance and discounts and all that kind of stuff, may not be more than $1,000. So here, by putting it in this code section, we don't worry about the value. If it's a catalytic converter, it's a felony. Uh, and so uh, that's an improvement, a new tool for you. By the way, Delegate Bell's bill also does something else, which I think is very useful, which is that it sets a new requirement for scrap metal purchasers um, to re record information, to keep information on file, uh, to make sure that the people that they're buying from actually have the lawful right to sell the stuff. Because again, why do people sell steel catalytic converter parts? It's to sell them, right? They don't have any other use for them. So... Um, the, the fact that scrap metal purchasers are purchasing this stuff and not questioning what they're buying, uh, this is why the problem exists, because there's people out there who will buy these catalytic converter parts. So if they stopped buying them, people would stop stealing them. The only reason they steal them is because somebody's out there to buy them. So here, uh, Delegate Bell also tried to inclu include some regulatory requirements that would crack down on the purchase of catalytic converter parts. All right, well, we're talking about improvements to the law, a few other improvements to the law. Uh, one of them is an improvement to venue on stalking. Now that stalking is done so often online, uh, it's done electronically, it's done through all kinds of different means, one of the big problems is figuring out where the offender was when they engaged in the stalking behavior. Uh, nowadays, let's face it, it's basically impossible if somebody is doing it online to figure out exactly where the offender was, right? You could maybe do IP address, but if they're using their phone, then you got to think of pigging. I mean, the, rea the reality is, you know, most stalking offenses are misdemeanors. You're not going to go that level of detail to prove a stalking case. Uh, and you'd have to figure it out long before, right? You'd have to figure it out after you take the case um, and after you... Um, have done all the investigation. And then at that point, you figure out, oh, it happened in Maryland or it happened in D.C. or whatever. So uh, here again, uh, you have uh, a bill. This is 
a bill by uh, a delegate uh, Bennett Parker, and this bill allows a person to be prosecuted for a stalking charge in the jurisdiction where the victim resided at the time of the stalking. And in addition to that, any conduct that occurs outside the Commonwealth is admissible if it is relevant in the, uh, in the Commonwealth for the stalking behavior. So here, notice two things. One is if I live in, for example, Fairfax County, and the person who's stalking me lives in Maryland, they do all their stalking behavior directed at me in Virginia, uh, but they are all in Maryland, we still have jurisdiction over. And oh, by the way, in addition, if one day while I'm in Maryland, the offender uh, threatens me face to face, that would be admissible in Virginia. It wouldn't be stalking behavior in Virginia because it all happened outside the Commonwealth. Uh, so we don't have jurisdiction over it. Not venue. We don't have jurisdiction over it. And venue and jurisdiction are different. But uh, but here it would be relevant, right? The fact that the person threatened me in Maryland, that's important. So uh, it eliminates the requirement that the conduct has to be occurring only in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And again, this is an improvement to uh, the law here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, by the way, when we're talking about venue and jurisdiction and so on, another improvement to the law that we have this year is Senator Hanger's bill, which addresses uh, crimes committed by someone when you're chasing after them, when you're in a close pursuit of that person. Um, so imagine for, for a moment here uh, that I go to stop somebody for uh, a theft. They steal, uh, they're, they're stealing, um, you know, something from Walmart. And uh, so I go to arrest them and the person jumps in a car and flees and then I'm going to chase after them. So I chase after them. Now the Walmart, let's say, is located in um, in, in wonder in the city of Richmond and I chase them into Henrico County and in Henrico County they uh, crash into another law, law enforcement vehicle they crash into a civilian vehicle they keep on driving and now they drive into Chesterfield and then I capture the person in Chesterfield so when I capture them in Chesterfield under current law I bring them to the magistrate in Chesterfield because they're in custody in Chesterfield and um, the, the, the magistrate in Chesterfield can give me a warrant for the original theft from Walmart. The magistrate in Chesterfield can give me a warrant for the eluding offense that I arrested him for in Chesterfield. Uh, and again, this is because the code is written this way. What the magistrate can't do, though, is give me warrants for all of the offenses that happened while I was chasing the offender in Henrico County. And the reason he can't is because the statute doesn't allow it. It's just how the statute was written. Uh, magistrates are created by statute um, and they get the authority that's issued to them by statute and so the statute as it's written says if you make a warrantless arrest again in Chesterfield the person you chased ch chased chased excuse me um, you can get uh, a warrant um, where the arrest was made uh, for the offense committed in the place that he fled from now under Senator Hanger's amendment uh, you also can get a warrant for offenses that were committed during the close pursuit of the person. So another improvement to venue statute in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, this is something that won't come up very often, uh, but it, it, it solves a problem that's been around for a while and, and, and we finally just fixed it, which is, and so that's good, right? Um, 
while we're talking about other things that are good, that fix sort of challenging issues, um, I do want to talk about is a change to 462.816.1. So you know you have reckless driving. Uh, there is this code section that they enacted uh, a while back, which is the, the these code sections on 462.816 that talk about injury to uh, as a result of careless driving and infliction of injury on vulnerable road users. And so it's a class one misdemeanor to operate a motor vehicle in a careless or distracted manner such that the careless or distracted operation is the proximate cause of serious bodily injury to a vulnerable road user who's lawfully present on the highways at the time of the injury. Uh, and again, this is 462.816.1. So who's a vulnerable road user? Um, that's a pedestrian, somebody on a bicycle, on a, on a wheelchair, a skateboard, roller skates, and so on, a person riding an animal. They're considered a, a vulnerable road user. And so if you drive in a careless or distracted manner, such that you that that your careless or distracted manner is the proximate cause of injury or injury to that person, um, it is a class one misdemeanor. Um, the way the code section was written, though, it only covered serious bodily injury. It didn't cover death. And so this year, the General Assembly uh, enacted a change. And again, this was um, uh, Sen uh, uh, excuse me, Delegate Kilgore's bill in the House and Senator Surveil's bill in the Senate. It was signed by the governor on April 11th. Senator Surveil is the original uh, proponent of this code section. And, you know, I don't know how many people use it. it it's sort of duplicative of other language and it doesn't necessarily give you a lot of more tools. But it is a, it is a tool to use in cases uh, where you have someone who does uh, kill someone on a bicycle or uh, who's on foot or, or you know, who's, who's vulnerable road user. Um, so it can be potentially useful for you uh, as well in those cases. Um, there were a lot of other useful bills uh, passed this year. I will talk about, I think, some of them in, in, the, next, uh, in the next episode. But one of the ones I do want to mention uh, this episode is a change to the law regarding arrest and summons quotas because this is one that I think is uh, important to every law enforcement officer in Virginia. It was not only something that people who were advocates for civil liberties and so on uh, wanted to were advocating for, but indeed the PBA uh, authored authored a version of this and uh, fought very hard to have this bill passed. So it was carried in the Senate by Senator Reeves. It was carried in the House by Delegate Bell, and it was signed by the governor on April eighth. So it was one of the first bills that was passed and signed. Um, it again. Uh, faced no opposition in the House or the Senate. It passed 100 to 0 in the House. It passed 39 to 0 in the Senate, and the governor signed it very fast. And uh, so this is a, 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 you know, a bill that I think something that everybody can agree on, right? And what this bill does is it prohibits any agency, state police, sheriff's department, police department, from uh, establishing either a formal or informal quota that requires an officer to make a specific number of arrests or to issue a specific number of summonses within a designated period of time. And it can't be the sole criterion for evaluating an officer's job performance. Now, again, this doesn't say that you can't be evaluated 
you can't have that information collected and that's not a criteria, right? So if we're gonna look at the fact that like, hey, what did you do last month? Did you write any summonses or arrests? No. Well, what were you doing? Uh, well, um, you know, I don't have anything else that I was doing, but you can't talk about the fact that I, you know, didn't make any summons or arrests. That's not a valid criteria. Well, that's not, no, that's not how it works. I'm looking at the full panoply of all the different things that you might have done as a law enforcement officer and I've noticed here that you just did, frankly, didn't do anything, uh, that's going to be a problem for you. So don't think this gets you out of, you know, having to do any work. But uh, if your agency said, you know, every officer shall write, you know, 10, you know, speeding tickets or something like that, uh, that is now prohibited, whether you're state police, sheriff's department, police department, or whatever. Um, so interesting uh, to see everyone sort of all the stars align on that bill. Everyone agreed that was bad. And so that bill passed as well. Um, so that's all I'm going to talk about today. There's a bunch more bills that have passed. And I'm going to come back to those later. Um, bills on uh, firearms and weapons for law enforcement officers, for retired law enforcement officers, uh, background checks. Uh, next time I'm going to talk about the changes. Uh, there was a change to the Marcus Alert bill. That's different. Uh, so that bill was changed as well. Um, some changes on misuse of power of attorney and so on. So all that's for next time. Uh, but for now, uh, that's all I got for you. I hope you like the podcast. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on SoundCloud. You can just listen on your web browser, uh, whether on your phone or your computer. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher Podcasts. Uh, if you want me to be on another app that you like, let me know, and I'll try to help you out there. Uh, but other than that, for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.